Welcome back to the arbitration station. Yeah, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones equal to... Arriba! Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kodik. I'm Joel Dawkins Kulboy. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and 1% rainbow and musings around the world. Where in the world are we, Brian? I'm sitting in my office. I think we just tweeted a picture of where I'm sitting, actually. So you, everyone can join us with the view. Oh, it's an amazing view. Where in the world are you, Joel? I'm in Copenhagen for uh, like 12 hours more. Then I'm going to Stockholm for the, and Uppsala after that for the final stretch. I'm going to isolate myself for like a week in my oh, wow. sparsely furnished office in, in Uppsala and like go over the footnotes and then submit the the damn dissertation i can't finally. believe it i can't believe you should live live instagram your sub, su- actually submitting the document it's a strange time because you have to submit it uh eight o'clock on a monday in the morning what yeah because i mean that's when the people who produce it go to work so it makes sense but it's also strange if you i'm not that kind of person who would sit up and you know wait until two minutes to draft the final thing and then submit so right. it'll be done by sunday night anyway but it's just for, for those who have a much more uh, stressful attitude to submitting things i would imagine it's crazy to have to send in such a big thing on 8 a.m absolutely on monday so um we will want to thank Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, our sponsor for Season 3. It's an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, IA Reporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis, as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. Thank you, IA Reporter. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So what's what is up? new? What? Uh, yeah, we don't. We haven't talked in a while, actually. You've been under <laughs> no, a I have so many things, uh, arbitration and otherwise. All I right, go, go rattle them off. First, first of all, I listened to the trailer that we recorded uh, where uh, in the beginning. Of the season, advertising what we were going to talk about on the season. Do you know how many things we We actually have covered? Uh, I think we covered art arbitration. That was about it. Yeah, that's about it. Everything else is just things that we advertised and then did not follow up on. One I will take blame for, and that is the book club. I still think the arbitration book club is a good idea. We intended to do it, and Jan, our our editor, even found a a jingle for the arbitration book club, but then my PhD thing got in the way. So that I think we will deal with at some point. I have a list of arbitration classics that we will go through. It just, it takes frankly more work than what we have been putting in so far, because you actually have to read a book before you record. Tough. That's a tough one. Yeah, but I'll I'll take care of that in the uh, uh, honey uh, covered 
land that is post PhD for me. <laughs> Th- then we also talked about the Omarosa uh, thing, right? But but that is just yeah, exactly. So so many explosions and implosions in the Trump administration since then. So we've all forgotten about Omarosa and her legal dispute with with the U.S. president. So that right. I think we can maybe maybe it will pop up again and we'll bring it up. We had a lot of fun with the Stormy Daniels thing, so maybe Omarosa will come back and. Yeah, surprises who knows right um there is no world bank president oh that is exciting in, in like two weeks from now i think he resigned as of february 1st and that is of course relevant for us because the president of the world bank as we've talked about over and over yes has some functions under the exit convention including ruling on challenges against exit arbitrators in some circumstances and appointing people on the annulment committees there were rumblings about ivanka trump right yeah and i don't know i mean at this point you don't really know what to believe if it's just people making fun of the trump administration but it was it was the financial times even i think wall street journal who reported it supposedly based off uh, serious sources inside the administration. So that would be incredibly interesting to have Ivanka Trump appointing people to exit annulment committees. It's crazy. It's absolutely <laughs> crazy. I'm like, that someone take the soundbite out of this and, and post it all over the world. It's crazy that this is, it's, you just don't realize like how, first of all, how interrelated the government is to like world politics and, and diplomacy. When you're, when you're, you know, when you're sitting in the US, you don't realize like how interconnected everything is and how this is just sitting in DC and law school is in my backyard. And then to stay, see how fragile it is that it can just be that how political appointees, especially presidential appointees, it's like a very scary thing if you have someone different in <laughs> office. That's true. And this, I mean, I'm no, uh, institutional historian like Taylor St. John, but there's an interesting background to why it is an American chairing the World Bank uh, and the World Bank, as well as the IMF, they are both institutions of the Bretton Woods, like the post Second World War economic order. And there was sort of a bargain struck that a European always heads the IMF and an American always heads the World Bank. There's actually an interesting New York Times article on why and how this happened. There was a whole spy thing involved in there. Oh, yeah, I read that. In interesting rumors about this, but whatever for whatever reason, it's always been the case that the U.S. get to nominate the president of the World Bank and Europe as an entity get to nominate the IMF right. chair. And then, of course, it has to be voted on by some sort, sort of board. So it's not necessarily so that Trump can just point and he'll get whatever he, he wants. And I think when the, the current World Bank president who is now resigned and surprisingly, I think he was actually when he was either the first time he was elected or when he was re-elected, I can't remember. He, it was contested for the first time. There was a counter candidate mm-hmm. because there is, of course, especially outside of the EU and the US, there's some uh, some states are not happy with this like informal Western Union idea that we have a European at the head of one body and an American at the head of the other one. So there are states who are actively advocating that we might break up this 1952 kind of Which <laughs> agreement. Should, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, a yeah. bit ridiculous. Yeah, it actually is. So who knows? It's not the case that ev- even if Ivanka Trump is the, the preferred candidate, if we are to take those rumors to be true, it's not necessarily so that she will be the new World Bank president. We Jesus, could meet a sentence. celebrity. <laughs> 
And then what if she starts appointing people that her father needed to like give a little favor for? We're going to be pleading in front of like movie stars. <laughs> is that what's going to happen? I mean, I wouldn't mind, but like, this oh, is my failed contestants for yeah, various like, reality yeah, shows. Yeah, is going to be my exit moment committee chair. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's by extension, uh, I guess. Also, of course, I don't have no idea how it works in the US, like internally, constitutionally, but the, the roster off of which the annulment committee comes uh, is, you know, made up of state nominees. So I guess it's the executive branch in the US who gets to put people on the exit roster as well. So it's not out of the question that Omarosa would end up with Rudy Giuliani. He's the best lawyer in the world in the president's oh, it, it actually definitely would have been him. Uh, wow. Or, or Michael Cohen. Who knows? Yeah, no, he'll be in jail, which <laughs> presumably should <laughs> keep him from the exit roster. Oh, my gosh. And then the That's food so. served at, you know, at, during lunch breaks during your exit cases will be fast food because that's what he likes to give uh, people. Oh, re- let's not get too carried away because okay. it's already dark. What else you got on your roster? Well, I got a, a bunch of stuff, uh, but maybe we can uh, start by talking about today's episode, and then sure. we'll see what we find. We should also mention you promised me this, so I hope it still applies. Since I will submit my dissertation, I think on the Monday, oh, the good. day before yeah. the next episode is supposed to air, we might might give ourselves a break. Yes. So the episode after this will not be in two weeks from now. It would probably be like three weeks from now. So that I'll be able to submit Breathe. hopefully our listeners will for, forgive me yes um this will only happen once in both of our lifetimes so please uh grant us some clemency on this one point on this one week <laughs> um so we have three topics at per usual today we will start with the united nations convention on the contracts for the international sale of goods also known as the cisg um or the cisc or the CISC. as i like to call it just because it's easier to say Right, the CISC. Um, and we'll just talk about a little bit of the history, the application, the scope, and some interesting stories about Scandinavia. Um, oh, and, really? Yes. And then we will talk about, in the effort of having conventions, um, we will talk about the ICSID additional facility rules, not necessarily convention, but the ICSID convention. That's where I was going with that. But we'll, Joel will talk about the ICSID additional facility rules or for those listeners in california exit af (laughs) exit as fudge (laughs) exit as fudge um it's so exit that we're going to do an exit additional facilities and that's pretty much it you've already covered my segment it's it's just it's a it's a great name that's it (laughs) (laughs) exactly just wanted to say it on air when i did um the frankfurt investment moot it was under the exit af rules oh i didn't know that which for a young scholarly student knowing nothing about arbitration or investment arbitration or any sort of diplomatic protection (laughs) um (laughs) it was quite difficult to understand what the hell that af in parentheses meant yeah but that's good that's why we're doing it for future mood students and also practitioners who 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 should know because it's not that complicated but it's still something you're supposed to know and and i know that from teaching as well that it's complicated for some students so it, it will take seven minutes to explain the exit af and uh, hopefully it will make more sense and to a wider audience and but, but so that those are both pretty short segments because yes. we're saving up for happy fun time 
which will be quite a mega one. We've discussed a couple minority issues on the podcast before, such as the Me Too movement or diversity on arbitral tribunals or in arbitration in general. And now we will be tackling a kind of a not touched upon issue, which has to do with LGBT plus, which is what LGBTQ plus LGBTI LGBTQI plus um, issues in arbitration. Um, So talking about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people in arbitration, and it, it won't we will talk generally about these issues in a law firm context, but we're going to try our best to angle it into how it affects, why it affects um, arbitration specifically. And we'll do so with uh, with some company. Quantum Boy, Michael Cotterly from, from Freshfields is joining us for this segment. That's right. He's back. He, um, he will be joining us shortly in about an hour. And um, it'll be good because we have some testimonials from... We outsourced on our Twitter. Thank you for the people replying. And through email, um, we have some testimonials to kind of talk about from different places around Europe and the Middle East and um, in the US or in North America, rather, um, how they're facing it and how it comes up in their life. And everybody has their own story. So it'll be yeah. good to give a voice to that. Looking forward to this. Not not happy fun time, strictly speaking. No. Yes. Although, I mean, the original meaning of the word gay is pretty much happy fun it's a gay old time (laughs) yeah exactly we're gonna have a gay time happy fun time (laughs) that's funny 1920s way of putting it it'll be good yeah it it will be good i'm looking forward to this i'll uh, uh, i'll enjoy having michael back as well it's the first time we are joined for the second time by the same person right that's that's correct our first repeat performer yeah, but I told him because the first time the audio for Quantum Boy, it, it was one of our better, more educational segments. And um, he was actually quoted. I think I told you this privately, but he was quoted <laughs> from his Quantum Boy segment in a conference with Thompson Reuters or something like that. Um, they actually quoted him. So that was he thought it was very funny because he was actually in the audience. Um, <laughs> but the audio was not 100 percent. So we have him in the studio. You'll be able to hear him nice and clear for this exciting segment. It's going to be so great. But first, it's the CISC slash CISG. We didn't have no CISG. If we bought or sold in another state, we didn't know what the law would be. I don't know what you heard about me. I'm just talking about the CISG. It works. Yeah, it does. It even rhymes. (laughs) I don't know how that came to me. I'm a genius, Joel. These things just come to me sometimes. Um, And here you are talking about, you know, appointees to the World Bank, and I'm I'm wrapping the CISG. Um, But we will have had a a, a video clip right before this, so maybe it's not completely random. But the CISG is a project of the United Nations Commissions on International Trade Law, which in the early 1970s undertook to create a successor to two substantive international sales treaties, um, the Convention Relating to a Uniform Law on the Formation of Contracts, Uh, for the International Sale of Goods, the acronym of that was ULF, and the Convention Relating to the Uniform Law on the International Sale of Goods, which is ULIS, and both were actually sponsored by um, UNODOA. So the goal of 
the UNSA trial was to create a convention that would attract increased participation in the uniform international sales rules. Um, so the text of the CISG was finalized and approved in six official languages of the United Nations um, at the convention in Vienna, which is why the VIS is held in Vienna, um, because it entered into force um, there in 1988. So it's kind of like an homage to the CISG for is those of you who have not participated. Is the Vismut always based on the CISG? Yes. Yes, okay. that's why they sing a song that. in the beginning of the Vis competition about the CISG. Um, and the whole song is kind of this uh, play on, it's like a country twang, and it's basically saying, well, we didn't have the CISG back in the day, boys, so how are we going to do business abroad? Um, and that's kind of the whole basis for the CISG is to give people doing uh, selling goods abroad to give them some sort of document or um, convention on how that would apply to kind of gap fill in this in a circumstance where things went wrong. Um, but mm. as I'll talk about, um, the CISG does not necessarily cover everything that you want in a sale of sales of good act. So sometimes you'll have to look to the local law as well. But we'll talk about that. So who are the contracting parties to the CISG? There's actually 89 countries that are contracting parties to the CISG. Palestine was the most recent to sign on to the convention. Um, and the UK, Hong Kong, India, and South Africa are the only people who have not yet ratified um, the CISG, the major trading countries. Um, and being from the UK, I actually had a case recently uh, that required me to analyze whether the CISG would apply. And I did not know that the UK did not um, ratify the CISG. That's otherwise a pretty good like, place to start in your analysis, I mean. Exactly. No. Did, I, did the state ratify? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is very good because I've made that mistake on one convention where I thought the country that I was work writing about had ratified it and they did not ratify it, which changed um, substantively my entire argument. So <laughs> step one, did it ratify the convention you're applying? Um, but why did it, I mean, if you think about why a country like the United Kingdom has not ratified the CISG, um, the business community thinks, um, I mean, there was a call for adopting it, um, but the, the community thought that if it's not broke, don't fix it. They have their UK sales of good acts that covers almost everything. So why do you need the CISG to apply? Um, according to Benjamin Hayward, who was on one of our previous episodes, um, the UK has always had an involvement with the convention from its very drafting. Um, so for over 30 years, it has um, circled the CISG, not unlike um, a cat circling a bowl of cream, committing in theory, but never actually advancing to ratification. Um, so it was kind of, it's been involved, it was involved in the negotiations, it was involved in all of the meetings, but at the very end, it decided not to, um, perhaps because of its pride in the long, long-standing common law legal imperialism, or mm. its long-treasured feeling of the superiority of English law to everything else. Um, <laughs> this just sounds like the U.S.'s approach to every part of international law. Exactly. We'll we'll negotiate and we're involved and we might even recognize that it's like binding and good international law, but we won't ratify the treaty. Exactly, exactly. Um, which is funny because the UK's biggest trading partners, like the US or most European states, are actually parties to the CISG. And if you look at Article One of the CISG, that could actually make a difference on when it if it could apply to um, the sales of goods between those countries in that event. So it's actually. Um, they could get it from um, an alternative route even. Um, 
but the interesting thing is that you have this um you have brexit now so what's going to happen with i mean the uk had this trade customs union um but now they're going to be on their island literally and metaphorically as far as the global market is concerned um so a key brexit campaign theme was the reclamation of sovereignty and by wanting to leave the eu it expressed a desire to break away from Europe, um, but it's causing uncertainty in the UK and the global markets post-referendum to basically say, well, what's going to happen to all these contracts we have? And do we have any sort of convention or any sort of international instrument that could um, protect us um, from doing sales with our EU partners? Um, So whereas the UK could have been, you know, saved by the CISG, now they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do after post-Brexit, which we know from the news um, maybe a no deal situation. Right. And then I guess the sales of goods, at least uh, in the legal sense, that's not the top three priority to figure out. Right. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it should be. If they're out of the customs union, they should be. Yeah, that is true. Actually. Really thinking about this type of stuff. But def- they're definitely not thinking about it. I don't think it was in the, in the deal, but I have not read it cover to cover yet. Um, so, what does the CISG apply to? Well, it applies to the sale of of goods, the definition of goods being a very debated topic. Um, It also covers other other types of contracts, such as contracts for the delivery of goods by installments, which is usually something that comes up a lot in the Vismut. And then Article 3 contains a special rule which extends the Convention's substantive sphere of applications to contracts for the sale of goods to be manufactured or produced as well as to contracts pursuant to which the seller is also bound to deliver labor or services. Um, So the services just shouldn't constitute a preponderant part. So the goods part of the contract has to be the predominating factor. All right. Um, Article 4 governs only the formation of the contract of the sale of goods. So this includes interpreting the party's agreement, the role of practices established between the parties, like international usages, um, the features, duration, and revocabilities of offers, the same, the effects um, and change of terms of the acceptance, modifications, um, the seller's obligation with respect to the quality of goods, um, the place and date of payment, um, the buyer's remedies for the breach of contracts, the buyer's obligations to take delivery and examine goods. So all of these like typical sale of goods um, legislations would be covered um, under Article 4. Um, but it would not apply to um, goods. So Articles 2 says that the CSG does not apply to sales of goods bought for personal, family, or household use, goods bought by auction, stocks, shares, investment securities, negotiable instruments, ships, vessels, hovercrafts, aircrafts, or electricity, oddly. Um, so <laughs> it applies to the formation of the contract, but not to the validity of the contract or of any of its provisions or of any usage. So the effect, also the effect which the contract may have on the property um, is not covered by the CASG under Article 4, but that would be left to issues of domestic law, actually. Um, and this, this really goes to Article 1. So if you ever want to know when the article, which should the CISG apply, in my opinion, so as Joel said, the first step is did they ratify the CISG. The second step is does the CISG apply to this specific sale of goods? Well, um, it applies between t- parties with the place of business are in different states. So if, if it's an international transaction, not intranational, international transaction, the CISG will be triggered when the states are contracting parties, clearly, or 
when the rules of private international law lead to the application of the law of a contracting state. Um, so All right. does that make sense? Yeah, and this, I remember this from studying this now 10 years ago, never having practiced commercial law. Right. So if you have a contract between a company in Hong Kong and a company in France, the CISG will apply, because um, France is a signatory that Hong Kong isn't, the CISG will apply if the rules of private international law lead to the application of French law. Right. Um, so that kind of makes sense. And I guess I, I'm assuming we should also just mention that the CISG can also apply if the parties have agreed so in the contract. Correct. So this whole discussion, when it does apply, that's, that's only in the scenario where there's no party agreement. That it should apply. When you have to decide whether it applies or not, correct. Yeah. But sometimes you'll say, okay, well, French law applies, but um, the CISG could provide gap filler provisions if, to the extent that the French Sales Act does not cover something, for example. Right. If you, even if you say in your contract that, okay, um, it's a, between France and Germany, for example, we have a contract um, under French law. Well, then you could still, the CISG could still be triggered if both countries are signatories and there's something in the CISG that applies. Mm, okay, as a gap filler. So, yes, a, a, yes. A complimentary. Yes. I see. Yes. Um, but it's very complicated. I mean, and then you get kind of into a conflict of law analysis on this, like most, if, if we, there is no choice of law, I mean, um, you apply the law most closely connected to the contract. Um, so that kind of goes through a typical conflict of law analysis on what it means to be closely connected to the contract. Um, and the contracting states were allowed to make reservations and declarations to the applicability of the CISG. Um, so 21 of the 65 contracting states had declared one or more reservations, among them some of the largest states like China, Russia, and the US. But some funny ones come out of um, Scandinavia, actually. So one of the reservations you can make is the Article, 2, 9, Article 92 reservation, um, which says that the CISG, um, that the contracting state may declare at any time of adherence that it will not be bound by part two of the convention, which is contract formation, or that will not be bound by part three of the um, of the convention. So there were actually four countries that made the, an Article 92 reservation for part two. And <laughs> yes, that I was, also remember from law school. Did you? Yeah, because the four countries are Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Norway. Exactly. Um, they have since withdrew it, but at the time, the reasons why um, why they did find it ex unacceptable to have part two was that first regarding the revocability of offers, the part two rules were described as unduly influenced by the corresponding common law rules, um, such as the default rule permitting an offer to revoke um, prior to yeah. the acceptance, which is too to formalistic, I think would be the shorthand right. version. Right. Till tillbaka kallad. Would you say that? <laughs> I uh, not in legal Swedish. I think that is uh, more Norwegian or Danish. Yeah, it looks like Danish. Återkalla, uh, I think would say. Återkalla, and then gyldighet, um, that there was a, a bit too much uncertainty on the validity of a contract. Right. Um, but those have since been re been repealed. But I thought it was very funny that the Scandinavians tried to take a stand <laughs> um, on that issue. Then there's another. There's two other. Uh, there's three other reservations. No, there's four other reservations, but I don't think we'll, we need to go into it. But um, there's... You just mentioned that it, it's, it's crazy complicated. 
it is crazy complicated. There are there's like this pattern of of reservations and declarations. So depending on which relationship you're looking at, various right. aspects of the CHC might not apply in a given context. Right. Um, like, for example, there's a reservation for your territories. So if you say, okay, we sign the CISG, but we're not going to sign uh, assign it for our territories, for example, you know, Gibraltar, then you have to make sure that it's covered. So it's a very, you can even get to some public international law issues, mm. which can be nice. Good thing that the world's biggest imperial power has not signed the CISG. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And then, of course, you can opt out of the CISG, which requires a clear, unequivocal and affirmative agreement of the parties to say that this contract is governed by the law of state X and not the CISG. Um, or you could say that it's exclusively to be applied by the by the law, uh, the domestic law of um, state X. Um, so there's been kind of split case law on what needs to do to exclude it, because, as I said, it can be triggered without you even knowing or wanting it to be triggered. Um, and most of it has to do, why do people opt out of the CISG? Just because they don't know what it is and they don't know what it implies or how is it going to be applied or how is it going to replace things that should not have been replaced. But um, so that's why a lot of people will just, without even knowing, just opt out of the CISG. But it's not necessarily, you know, an affirmative decision that they think the CISG is, you know, an invalid or insufficient document to protect their their sale of goods um yeah i mean just to defend the scandinavian approach now and recover some ground here i think that we have actually since since turning around generally we have actually uh, incorporated more or less the csg uh, when it comes to to sale of goods legally speaking That's so right, uh, just to, to overcome the sort of uh the point you were making that we make, make reservations now, it's actually the other way around. And the, this uncertainty you're speaking of that we don't really know what it means. I don't think that applies in Scandinavia, generally speaking, because now our domestic law is so similar to CISG. It's like the uncentral model law, basically. Right. Right? We've you know, allowed it to seep into our domestic law to the extent that it's, it's very similar now. Exactly. And if anyone knows... Um, the, the Swedish Sales of Good Act, it's actually pretty archaic, isn't it? Or your contracts act is archaic. That's yeah, what it exactly. Is. Yeah, that's different. The contract your act sales is, is of good act old is and strange. Right. Yeah, right, it, right. it's basically CISC. <laughs> okay, so for those of you doing contracts in Sweden, just know that you will be having a CISC governed, similarly governed uh, arbitration. What is your general take otherwise? Uh, is it that lawyers and I guess business people also by extension aren't comfortable with the CISG? Yeah, and there's also like certain things... Um, that the CISG will have, like, for example, the obligation of good faith. Um, if you have this and you have a U.S. party, well, the U.S. isn't a signatory, or the U.S. is a signatory, yeah. the U.K. is not. But if you have parties that are, are not familiar with the principle of good faith or think it's inapplicable completely, and then you have a case under the CISG, and then you have the good faith invoked, um, or that principle invoked, I think it could create some surprise and kind of a lack of predictability. Um, between with certain parties yeah but that also presupposes that you know that good faith is in oh the yeah CISG. no no absolutely you could be receiving the respondents memorandum and saying you know we're in you know there's a good faith defense in all of this and then you're like wow i thought we were <laughs> applying you or u.s law you know what i mean 
Yeah, but that, that's what I'm asking. What do you, uh, who you're more of a business lawyer than I am, what is your sense of like the the proficiency out there in the in the legal community when it comes to the CISG? Oh, it's it like, not. It's not. It, it would be like studying any domestic law that you're not familiar with. And the Vismut I mean, hasn't changed it in the world of arbitration to the extent that arbitration lawyers who work internationally now treat the CISG as just any other law that they know well. Yeah. No, I, it's definitely in your repertoire. I think it's kind of like, have you administered it? Have you worked on a case under the ICC rules? It's kind of like that, where they're, they're general concepts. You kind of get them. You know that they exist, and you know that there's quirky things about them, like there's no parole evidence rule or this like rev- revocation. Um, you know that PACE has a huge database of case law that comes from German courts. I mean, you know oh, yeah, okay. yeah. you know what it is in its concept, but until you have a case under it, you don't really, like I have recently learned you don't really know article one scope <laughs> issues to yeah. the, to the level uh, of detail that you need to but it should be in the toolbox of any average arbitration lawyer yeah i, th- I definitely That's what think you're saying so. i definitely think so it, it would be like you know do you know the uk bribery act i mean even though you're not working in the uk to yeah, know i know of it of, exactly <laughs> Exactly, and kind of know the principles since it is the leading document in the field, and that's the same thing with having a leading document in the sales international sales of goods. Um, you would definitely want to know the CISG. Yeah, for cocktail parties, if we're not. Oh yeah, like small talk. <laughs> what do you think of the good faith principle? Cocktail chatter, <laughs> Joel. You're never invited to my cocktails. <laughs> I know. You know. Uh, should we move on to some um, ICSID discussions? Yes, some procedure. So exit additional facility rules or the exit AF rules, which Luke Peterson, our sponsor and my occasional boss thinks is the most hilarious thing there is. He's even printed t-shirts and I don't know if you saw, he he, he, he actually drew a, like a, a comic strip a few weeks ago that he tweeted on the exit additional facility, like the, the way it was conceived, the name. Did you see this? Oh, no, you sent it to me and I read it, but I, I forget what the punchline was. Yeah, it's kind of hard to retell in audio format, but uh, if I can figure out a way in the future to to properly recount comics on air, I'll do it. But it's funny, and it has to do with the name once again, because too many people, Californians, maybe uh, in particular, AF is is a good shorthand for other things. So uh, we'll stick with exit AF or exit as fudge or <laughs> additional facility. <laughs> Uh, but what is it? I've already uh, told you off air that I haven't had the time to properly prep this segment. Uh, mm. So I will I will do what I always do, and I will ask you a lot of questions that you don't necessarily know the answer to, and I'll use that as uh, a starting point for a discussion. How but we, we we could first turn to history in just a short recap because we discussed with Taylor St. John like a year ago uh, about the history of ICSID and the ICSID convention entered into force when. Brian? You're kidding me. 1948. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I'm editing this out, so don't worry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. Fuck. Uh, no, in 1966, I think. It's from 1965. I think it entered into force in 1966. And that is relevant because not much happened. That's sort of the general point that Taylor was making. Say at, that again. Uh, say the sentence again, because it's going to be really hard to, d- to delete that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh shit, which one? Where, where, where Just, should I say? When I'll say I'll answer you correctly. <laughs> You'll answer nineteen sixty five. Oh, there's no point in trying to make fun of you when you're the editor. All right. Uh, it entered into force, I think, in 1966. It's it, uh, it was open for signature in 1965. Yeah, so it, th- that sounds it, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 1965 <laughs> Washington Convention. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. Well, it's it's on me. I shouldn't keep doing this to you. Oh, it's funny. To cover up my own lack of prep. <laughs> But the, the the timing matters because, as Taylor was uh, talking about, uh, not much happened at Exit for a long time. In the 60s and even in the 70s, uh, Exit and Aaron Brokus in particular, they were, he was just traveling around trying to get states and also investors to, to bother <laughs> and uh, start referring to Exit in their treaties and contracts right, right. And, and also to like actually uh, file cases at Exit. And it didn't really happen. And that's sort of the context in which we uh, ought to look at the additional facility, because in the mid-1970s, Aaron Brokers thought it would be a good idea to open up Exit to, to tasks that would sort of go beyond the Exit Convention. <laughs> it's like, let's, let's rope some other people in here with some new rules. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that was basically it, judging from both uh, Taylor's book and, and also Antonio Parra, who was Deputy Secretary General of Exit, who's written a book called, I think, like the History of Exit Convention or something. Yeah. He writes about this a lot. And the basic point here is that uh, what we have today, which I'll get back to, obviously, uh, the additional facilities that we know today, that's much more narrow than what Aaron Brockes had envisioned because he really wanted to like open up Exit to do a bunch of things uh, in order to have something to do, essentially. or That's more or less what, what Taylor argues. Uh, and there was some... Um, uh, back and forth between uh, the exit member states about this. Some exit member states didn't want to undermine the exit convention by opening up exit to non-exit states, for example. Right. Uh, and, but I mean, obviously the exit convention has its natural limitations that we've talked about. It has to be a, a legal dispute arising out of an investment the Salini thing and all that. It has to have something to do with investments that's in the convention. It has to involve states or nationals of states that are exit convention signatories. And in the 70s especially, there weren't that many states that were exit signatories. So exit was basically unavailable to a lot of states. Um, but what we ended up with in the late 1970s, uh, what we now know as the exit additional facility rules, uh, is basically a practical alternative for arbitrations that are administered by ICSID but not governed by the ICSID convention. There are two other aspects of the ICSID additional facility. That's conciliation and fact-finding. And fact-finding was a big thing that Aaron Brock has really pushed for, that the ICSID should be able to like help states in particular and, and fact-finding missions when they were like redrafting contracts or redrafting legislation or stuff like that. Right. Not a big thing, uh, and nor, nor is conciliation. So we really care about the, the arbitration aspect of Exit AF, basically. And it is a way for Exit to administer cases that are outside of the Exit Convention. That's pretty much it, I think. 
and it was originally intended to be temporary because as i said a, a lot of states weren't comfortable like w- why do we have the exit convention if we're going to create this whole other set of arbitration rules that are outside of the exit convention they right. felt that, that would sort of undermine the exit convention so uh, the original plan was for it to be temporary but then in the 70s and in the 80s in particular states started to putting exit af in their treaties so eventually exit uh, decided to make it permanent so that's what we have today. As they, they decided to put in their treaties as an alternative or instead of the exit arbitration rules? Well, that's a, a good question to which I don't think there's an like empirically satisfying right. answer, really. But um, I'm, I'm arguing this in like the background section of my dissertation on non-exit arbitration. Because mm-hmm. this exit AF doesn't really fit nicely in exit versus non-exit. Because it's somewhere in between. It's administered by exit. It's made up, like drafted by exit. But it's not exit arbitration. It's something else. And I, I think that uh, it, it, it is primarily used. And uh, as far as I know, it's only been used in disputes and also in treaties where at least one of the states involved is not an exit state that's what that's how i know that exit af yeah it's it's basically like if, if in practice if one state involved hasn't ratified the exit convention that's when you're interested in exit additional facility rules because it's sort of like a plan b and the number of cases they get a year must be like under 10 right well, that's, I don't know, uh, and I could have looked it up. I think it, from time to time it might have been larger because um, up until very recently, a lot of the NAFTA cases are exit additional facility cases. Mm-hmm. And that is why, here comes another quiz that you can edit out. Here we go. Why is that? <laughs> Open-ended question. <laughs> why, do they, why did NAFTA go through exit? Yeah, extraditional facility. So why why aren't there any NAFTA exit cases? Why are they all historically in extraditional facility? Uh, oh, because it's not in the agreement. Ah, good, good try. I'll give you <laughs> half a point. All right. It's actually it's it's tricky because the it it flies under the radar. Because we all assume that the NAFTA states are exit states, but in fact, Canada only ratified the exit convention in 2013, and Mexico like a year ago or something. Right? Yeah, they did. We talked about that with Gloria. Yeah, exactly. So up until when Mexico ratified the exit convention, by definition, all NAFTA cases that were administered by exit uh, had to be something else than than exit convention, because exit convention was not available to Canada or Mexico. All right. So a lot of like the Leuven case, for example, that we spend a lot of time on is an exit additional facility case. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's a good uh, segue to like a more general what's going to happen now mm-hmm. in the future. Uh, will we see more exit additional facility cases? And there's an interesting thing here, where, which I think if we're allowed to be that cynical, which I think we are, I think it's a smart thing uh, from exit. Because they are, as we know, reforming the exit rules generally. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of things going. But there is one specific proposal from exit that the exit AF rules are open to non-state entities and particular regional economic integration organizations, i.e. the EU. Right. So they want to make it specifically clear in the rules that... Uh, the EU in practice or other regional economic integration organizations can also be the respondents. It doesn't have to be states. 
using the additional facility rules. But then and every, that is right. I think that's a smart move for the future because many of the new treaties with the EU as a party uh, and all these things, you know, the, the reform works trying to set up some sort of future multilateral body for investment mm-hmm. disputes. And there's a lot of discussion um, as concerns the, the compa- compatibility with the exit convention right. because the EU cannot, as a non-state, cannot ratify the exit convention and thus cannot be a party to an exit case. Right. Do you and think it's, is, when you say a good thing, do you say it's a good thing as far as defining international law principles or abiding by international law principles, or it's a good thing for the business of ICSID? Yeah, no, the latter. Yeah. I'm thinking strategically. I think it's a smart way for ICSID to ensure that they have a say in whatever future reforms come out of the Oncetral work, where I guess this is that's the forum where this will take place. So basically, they are using the ICSID AF rules to like keep a piece of the pie for the mm-hmm. future, regardless of what comes out of the, the reform works. Because the exit convention, for better or for worse, is like, it, it's gonna look the same. It's impossible to change the exit convention. Whereas the extraditional facility is a more flexible instrument that they can right. play around with a little bit. That's true. I mean, but even when they change, but oh, oh, and when they change, oh, right, because when they change the rules, they don't have to go through like an amendment of the exit convention, which requires consent of all the contracting parties, right? I think so. so I should know change, this, but you can change the uh, rules. Uh, just uh, yeah, it, it's either all the contracting parties or it's in the convention. I think it's a qualified majority of like three fourths or something. So it's still, it's it's a big enough number that have to agree to changing the convention mm-hmm. that the exit secretariat has just assumed that it's a no go and they haven't even thought about it. Right, and then for the substantive provisions of the exit AF rules, we're really talking about the same kind of protection, right? There's no substantive parts. Sorry, my bad. It's it basically should have mentioned this before. Actually, the it, it's basically like the onsetral rules. It is just essentially procedure. yeah, it's just procedure and it's more or less just like an ad hoc arbitration. They were drafted, you know, late 1970s, where the onsetral rules from 1976 were completely new, and it's obvious that it's inspired by the onsetral rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's maybe something we should mention just for the record, too, so that people can remember something uh, and, and okay, keep a, a hook. So that's the main difference between exit convention and exit additional facility, that the exit additional facility is similar to the commercial rules, meaning mm-hmm. that you don't have this like self-contained exit thing. For example, you must have a place of arbitration in a, in a state if it's an exit additional facility case. And... You cannot enforce an exit additional facility award under the exit convention, but you have to go through the New York convention like other commercial awards. Interesting. So it's based, I mean, practically speaking, it's just any other commercial arbitration rules, but they happen to be administered by the exit secretariat. Right. And can involve, right, and can involve the state as the counterparty. That's interesting and useful. So if you were advising your client between exit AF rules and UNCETRAL ad hoc. It's more or less the same. <laughs> it is the same. So there's yeah. no, you wouldn't say there's like a difference or any sort of advantages we can draw out between. I don't think so. I, and I, uh, I haven't been in that position. So I think if you spend an hour comparing, doing some research, maybe you will come up, come up with some minor things. Yeah, but I, I mean, there are a lot of unknowns, but they are the same unknowns regardless of whether or not it, it's right. uncontrolled because you need the place of arbitration, you know, all these other things that you have to like put in place, but they are the same 
in both. I think maybe if you want flexibility, the uncentral rules are somewhat better because then you can maybe have some other institution administered, for example, whereas the extraditional facility rules, right. uh, by the wording of the rules themselves, they are tied to exit and the secretariat. So it, it's going to be, in practice, it's going to be run very uh, similar to an exit case, I guess. I wonder if a lot of um, exit AF cases are um, just unconsciously relying on or subconsciously relying on precedent by the normal exit rules just by the virtue of the fact that it's within the same organization whereas they could you know rely on central cases and even some commercial disputes depending on the subject matter uh, yeah. because you don't really have the same interests at play really yeah that's a, it's a great question it's a, it's it's good even like a, as a research question right. i think this is something that political scientists like like Taylor <laughs> really would be interested in looking at, I think, because it's, you have one institution, one international organization uh, with its own identity and, and like logic and, and ways mm-hmm. of operating. And they administer both cases under a convention, which is very specific. And, you know, the, they have the states deciding how the convention should be you know, construed for the future. And you have all these like public international law elements. What is an investment and all this stuff? Right. And they also do the other cases that are very similar procedurally to like the uncentral rules. And they have the same institution administering both. It's very interesting to see yeah. if the what spills over into the other. And and also, like what, what do the ex-secretariat people themselves think that they are? Are they like yeah. international civil servants working for the World Bank or are they like the ICC? I don't know. Yeah, that that is a and I, it it must trickle down in some in some weird way, especially if you're a tribunal manager sitting in, in an exit case. You would say I'm sitting in an exit case even though you're in an exit F case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I don't think a lot of people appreciate the sort of underlying theoretical differences. It's just yeah. if it's exit, it's exit. Basically. Right. Because even if you're looking at something like security for costs or um, awarding costs at the end of the arbitration. I mean, you have some practice or jurisprudence constant, that's what you would say. Um, it, within ICSID itself, I wonder if tr- some tribunals misstep in, in the AF cases. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And I, I mean, generally, I've had this on my list of topics for, for thesis students to write about for a long time, like all these aspects of the ICSID AF rules. I think they are under researched generally because mm. as you say there's i mean people have argued i'm not sure it's necessarily true but people have argued that institutions have an interest in a consistent case law like we we know yeah. that the exit secretariat they influence uh, informally and formally how exit awards look at least you know the way the awards are structured and they they want it to look in a certain way and i'm not sure if that mandate also spills over to this these uh, af disputes true True. There's a lot of there's a lot of like groundwork, just dogmatic legal studies to go over and look at exit AF awards and compare them to exit awards. I think so. Right. A lot of future research needs to be done. Exciting AF, if you ask me. Um, yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> on that note, um, let's move on to a gay old time. Yay. We are back for the happy fun time, and we are joined by a guest, Michael Cotterly from Freshfield. How are you doing? Uh, good to see you again. Great to be back. The first repeat guest <laughs> we've had. We tried to populate the room a little more, but uh, you were the one who survived. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, we also have Joel on the line for some uh, popcorn commentary over there. But we will be talking about LGBTQ plus I plus rights um, in the arbitration sphere. We talked, as I said in the intro, we talked a lot about other di um, diversity issues that had to do with gender and race. But this is the first um, minority that is maybe more hitting home to me. And... Uh, Hey, and the, and uh, my community. Um, so we will be talking about just how you enter the legal practice facing these issues, how you are in a law firm, how you come out at a law firm, how you come out every day at a law firm, how you um, talk to clients, how you deal with business, um, etc. But <clears throat> To get started, I definitely want to go through some of the replies we got from the tweet that Joel put out and also some personal uh, emails that I had sent to some colleagues that are in this uh, community as well. And I'll keep them confidential for their sake, for their firm's sake, and uh, for their sanity's sake. But uh, we got, and you guys feel free to chime in, but I'll just rattle off um, each story and maybe get your thoughts after each one. Um, so the first one comes from a gay lawyer in Tel Aviv who says, well, I don't know, walk around and tell clients that I'm gay. We don't have an LGBT organization at my firm, but the whole concept of these kind of organization is not really developed in Israel. I think only one firm has one, which was created by a lawyer who moved here from the U.S. Um, I do not oppose to coming out to clients. I just have not had the chance to. Um, and that kind of teases out the first issue, don't you think? I mean, I, I think there's a big question of, of, of coming out, um, and it is an issue that um, we face in the community on a regular basis. Uh, and there's the question of to whom do you come out, how do you come out, um, and all of that. Um, for me, I had that decision to make when I applied to law firms way back when I was in a law when I was a law student. Um, I wasn't out in my applications when I applied okay. um, to law firms. Uh, but then later on, I, I, I was sort of sort of out. And, and by that, I mean, I would have said, like, under interests, I would have said that I was in my LGBT affinity network at the law school, which was called Out in Law. So <laughs> if you were a incredibly woke um, recruitment person you, and in, in Canada, you would know what that meant. If you didn't, or you were bigoted and therefore weren't right. interested in knowing, you thought I was into the outdoors. Right. <laughs> um, so it was kind of, it, 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 was, it was a no-risk way uh, to come out. I, I'm a bit more in your face about it now, to the extent that I can signal it in, in, in various ways. And, and what, what, what would you say is like an in-your-face signal? <clears throat> well, I mean... A very good one is on my firm bio, uh, on the Freshfields website, I say that I'm a senior member of HALO, um, which is Freshfields LGBT plus um, affinity organization. And I, I do that. that just be the same thing as, as the law firm or the, the law student association that some people just think that you're very into Beyonce, for example? <laughs> uh, I, I clarify when I say HALO, Freshfields LGBT. Right, you write that on. I there. write that. In, that okay. <laughs> I, I I write that. Yeah. Either yeah. Either that, or I could be incredibly religious. Um, <laughs> no. So so I I, I make clear. To, I, I make sure to do that. I do that for a number of reasons. Uh, one is because I'm quite proud of that. I'm quite proud of the fact that the firm has that organization uh, and that it exists, and and I'm proud of my role in it. Uh, and, and also. 
uh, I think it sets an important tone. I think, uh, for example, when LGBT students are looking to whether or not they want to, to, to join a firm, these are the sorts of things they're going to be looking at. Right. Not just do you have the organization, but are, <coughs> are, are, are members of the firm really proud to be in that organization? Um, I have to say, because when I was you know, um, looking at different firms and I saw that your bio had that, I was, I was, it was daring to someone who wasn't as out at that time. Um, and I thought it, but it, I also thought it was very commendable and it was something, you know, this person's actually taking a step forward for the community and we all need to be as open about this. Uh, Winston also has an organization called Pride, um, which may not be as subtle as out in law. Um, and I think the logo is a rainbow. So, um, but we have it and I was actually approached about uh, joining the group, which says a lot about how much I'm keeping it under wraps over here. But um <laughs> But I think uh, talking about like tools you use to come out because you definitely don't like to say, you know, this is how I, this is who I am and I'm I'm gay or anything like that. But using pronouns is something that I have thought as is is kind of like a, and I also like to see the reaction because they it, it's a bit unexpected to some people. But um, I thought that is something that I saw only from another lawyer doing it, which is why I think us doing it is actually beneficial and it's actually changing someone's life because it changed mine. It allowed me to say, okay, this is A, a safe space and B, here's a technique to do it that people aren't really, people who aren't comfortable with it won't be necessarily confronted with something new. I, I have a question on this mm -hmm. point that I thought a little bit about. I'd be interested in hearing your, your, your thoughts on it because there are, you know, in many fields you have trailblazing gay people who are well-known and act as sort of initial door openers. We can all think of these people in acting or architecture or politics or, or whatever. But in other, I don't know, our pretty otherwise idolizing person-focused field of arbitration, there are few, if, if any, of these. Uh, although there are organizations and there are ways, of course, as, as an individual to sort of signal. But do you think this is a good thing because lawyers should not have to be identified by sexual or gender identity or is it a bad thing because there are very few visible role models in arbitration? That's a difficult, yeah. uh, that's a really difficult question. I mean, there are some out there, um, I, I will just say, but it's never been obvious. And I, and it's, uh, you know, so for example, one would know that I'm gay by looking at my bio in my website, right? Uh, but it doesn't come up if I'm in global arbitration review, right? right? <laughs> like, it's not going to say acting for the claimant was gay lawyer Michael <laughs> Cotterly. Um, you know, it, it, it's just not going to come up. So I, I you know, it, it's... It, it, the, the one point I will say is, and again, I because I came to arbitration sort of halfway during my career, or at least like I, I was already in the legal profession as a litigator before I really moved in the arbitration world. I think what would be really interesting to know, and I just and I don't know, Brian, if you have any testimonials on this basis, is mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like for uh, an LGBT student or a trainee getting into this, and and if that is a concern. For them, and we, I mean, we have, I mean, on this podcast has been discussed, and it's an issue that my firm takes very seriously. We talk about the, um, the, uh, the, you know, the lack of women, um, you know, being appointed as arbitrators. Right. You know, um, there are a lot of women leaders uh, in the uh, in the profession. I, I work with one of them, um, and so, so you know, but we, we talk about role models for women. Uh, so I, I guess the question would be. And I don't know if you had this experience entering 
the arbitration profession, were you looking for an LGBT mentor? Was that something that you needed? No, no, definitely not. It, it was never a... Because, and this is the thing that I, that I did want to raise in this, and I, I think it has to do with comparing us to the, a, a gender discrimination versus a racial discrimination is ours doesn't show on our skin. And so there's a, you don't really say, okay, well, I need to see this because I can relate to someone or I think differently because of the, my sexual orientation. Like that, that never had anything to do with it, so I never connected it to my development. However, if I had seen someone who was in a position of power, like if you see, you know, a senator that's appointed the first gay senator in the U.S. or something like the fish gay governor was just appointed and you say, look, he was not discriminated against on his rise to this position. That would be nice to see. But I was I wasn't I wasn't seeking it out. Um, We have a letter actually from or an email from a student in China. So we can maybe answer your question. Um, I'm happy to share some of my stories as a closeted gay man born and raised in China. Um, the general trend is the society, mostly the youth, is becoming more open-minded, and we do have an openly gay professor here in my law school for many years. Well, quote-unquote openly in the sense that everyone knows he's gay and he's on good terms with the rest of the faculty, but I doubt he actually talks about this. The situation I am in is everyone around me just assumes I'm straight, although I can't really blame them for I'm the, I only came out to a few friends. A few weeks ago, a senior figure in my faculty out of the blue reminded me not to do any gay stuff as the job market is getting so competitive, not at least until I get tenure somewhere. He's in academic. Okay. Mm-hmm. I still don't know if that person was making a general comment or someone stabbed me in the back and generally thought using my private life could hurt my private life could hurt me one way or another. But I was totally shocked and I still am. The worst thing was I didn't even dare to ask why. And another professor, apparently having no knowledge of the, quote, gay stuff, openly declared in his classroom in front of 120 undergrad students that I do discriminate gay people. They are disgusting. They choose a doomed path. The nature would make them extinct. His exact words. I also have a friend who is also in academia in Europe with great publication records, but got into some trouble when he was looking for jobs. Uh, one prestigious law school, he goes on to talk about how one prestigious law school, um, happy with his resume and the interview asked him to do a psych evaluation in which he was asked if he was gay. And he said, yes. Um, upon learning this, the Dean and the hiring committee became very unhappy and couldn't re- that they couldn't re- accept a candidate like him. So they asked him to evaluate, go through the psych evaluation again. And then the law school rejected his ap- application. Oh, wow. Um, so I mean, I think this is this is a horrible situation, and I, I've I've never faced this. I've never, fa- and this is just like our growing up privileged in a in a Western society. Yeah. Um, does that mean? I mean, this is an outspoken person who has you know obviously some bigoted views against um, homosexuality, which could be religious based, but. Um, I don't know, like to make a, norm, a more nuanced discussion is, are you afraid of getting um, un, unconscious bias about your sexuality? And therefore, do you think it stifles you to be more open? I mean, even if it, this is my own personal view, my own personal perspective. Um, and again, it, it is important to say that I'm saying this from the privileged position of living in London um, working at what I consider to be a very progressive, progressive uh, commercial law firm, um, is that even if there were some sort of unconscious bias at play, uh, I, I would sort of, and if I was concerned about that, I, I would ask at what cost would I be hiding my sexuality? Mm-hmm. And I say that both 
personally and professionally. So personally, um, I think one thing that it's really hard to articulate, um, and I think a lot of people may or may not understand, is how awful it is to be in the closet. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Uh, it's like keeping the most personal secret uh, and something that is so fundamental to you and not sharing that with anyone. While being paranoid that everyone's going to find out. Correct. And it, I, I just can't underscore... Um, and and I, I feel very strongly about this as someone who, who came out, uh, I, I don't want to say late in life, but later, certainly than, than youth come out these days. I know. Uh, and, you know, it has an impact on you. And, and so it, it really, it's, just, it's not pleasant and it, has, it does a lot of damage to you, I, th- I think, I think uh, mentally and, and psychologically. And so the idea of going back into the closet is just, I, I, you know, it's only in certain circumstances we can get into that later of, of when I, you know, don't disclose. Right. But there's a professional aspect to that too, which is um, the reality is, you know, you can, while you can draw a barrier between sort of your personal life and your professional life, there's going to be some bleeding between the two. You know, we work long hours uh, in law. We work long hours in arbitration. You're going to share aspects of your life, right? You know, heterosexual people have the privilege of just saying, you know, my wife or my husband, knowing that there will be zero ramifications, right? Um, so, you know, they, they can speak about their personal lives easily. And, and they're sharing that. They're, they're right. giving you a window into your life, which is a way to build intimacy. It's a, will, it's a way to, to build connections with your colleagues and with your clients. And if you don't give that opportunity to yourself, you know, what, did you, what are you up to? I was with friends, right. uh, you know, or like being really... Like, any good bars around here? Uh, none that you would uh, like. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, being really evasive uh, is a barrier to your ability to interact and connect with people. And so I think from a professional perspective, I think it's quite important, uh, if you're comfortable, yeah. uh, uh, to be out. When we were... Um, we talked a little bit about this before, and that was actually something that really struck a chord with me, was the amount of relationships that I thought were being um, hindered or that they weren't really realizing their full potential while I was in the closet is it was actually kind of a big deal for me it was even my own like family I would be like they don't know the the full me they don't know the real me they can't get to know me and as you say when we're working long hours that you you don't want to have that in the back of your mind or like okay well what are my boundaries with this person and what are my boundaries with that person you just want to like live live an open life and especially if you're like oh I'm going on a date you know I need to leave work early because I'm going on a date well you know you if if you say that 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 begs the question who are you going to go on a date with and then it's a it's a slippery slope but that leads me into another letter that we got from um, a lawyer in Stockholm who self-identifies as a lesbian and she now works in in in-house counsel and she wrote to us that says I have always been obnoxiously out at least since I became more senior at the law firm. She was at the law firm before. The fact that we at our, at our law firm had very closeted, uh, yeah. The fact that at, our law, at a law firm they can be closeted partners sent a poor message to the more junior colleagues and someone had to let them, the people know that there was no need for shame or being closeted. On many occasions it was assumed that I was straight, especially after I had kids. And I made sure to make, always make it clear that I had a wife and not a husband. I never got any bad reactions, but people many times felt the need to tell stories about other gay people that they knew and approved of. But it was always clear that they were coming from a good place and just wanted to let me know that they were okay with my gayness, even though I never asked for their approval. I don't have any special anecdote to share. It seems every day at work in in every day at work in interactions with new people is just another opportunity to come out. It is just never ending and it is always somewhat daunting having to expose private things and not completely know how that information is going to land. And what 
I have talked to her about this before and her big thing was always with clients, especially, and we could talk about this, if you have a client that comes from a culture and you're just not sure how they fit within a culture that has um, a history of being homophobic. Um, and I think that's where the arbitration connection goes in is that we are in an international field, a purely international yeah. field. Yeah. And you're at a conference or you have a client meeting and you just, as she says, you just don't know how the information is going to land. So you tend to default not saying anything. And, and that was my experience when I practiced in Dubai before, before moving to London. Uh, I was definitely out uh, with the firm that I was in um, because there I felt comfortable. And in fact, before I even transferred to the Dubai office, um, I cleared with HR. Before we, you know, before we, before we do this, uh, I am a out uh, gay man. Uh, I, and I don't intend to go back into the closet. If this presents any problems, you you let me know. And and they said no, it didn't present any problems. With clients, it was trickier. And I, uh, whether that was advisable or not, I had a default rule not not to be out with my clients. And as a result, um, you know, if there was any client who wanted to you know become buddy buddy, which is very, it was much more common, I think, in a, in a jurisdiction like Dubai, I had to put a wall up. Yeah. Um, I just didn't feel that it was. Uh, a safe space to do that. And, that, and that's one a bit culture, and of course, just in that jurisdiction, you, you know, um, homosexuality is illegal, right? Uh, and and so you know, you you have to think about those issues. Yeah, and I don't. I think that's shared with most, honestly, about um, how they treat clients because you just you just don't want to go there, especially if you're not the partner responsible for originating that matter, where they clearly know who you are. I mean, you're being brought on a case. But hopefully, LGBT plus lawyers are not facing what this student in China is facing, which is basically that you're, and this is what I was always afraid of before I came out or before I like treated myself as an, you know, an out lawyer, was that I wouldn't be staffed on cases because of this. I wouldn't be able to go to pitch meetings because I, my voice would not have been manly enough for them to be feel comfortable or I wouldn't be able to plead in hearings because maybe the arbitrators wouldn't have would have noticed a mannerism that they didn't respond well to or something like that and I think I have come over that and I've just kind of like you know been more myself but um it's definitely something that haunted me like the first three years Joel how is this uh how are you reacting to all this <laughs> so many things <laughs> at the same time I have one, but it's interesting, and I'm, I'm just I'm just learning by listening because my assumption from my uh, incredibly privileged position has always been the opposite of what you you were just describing. I've always assumed and prided myself on working in in an open-minded, you know, metropolitan, intellectually curious field of of empathetic people, and always assumed the best because we hang out with like with people who are generally so open-minded. But that is because I've never really had to test that assumption on something that matters. I've just been right. safe in my own made-up privilege, I think. <laughs> but I also have a question that is that uh, came to mind when you read the, the latest letter of the from, from the uh, in-house counsel in Stockholm, and that is the uh, issue of having to come out repeatedly. Because mm -hmm. I think if I make myself as as the spokesperson for the stupid straight people we assume that you come out once and then you're done. That's right. the way you've been taught in like pop culture. There's one critical moment when you come out, you know, a big scene to everyone and then it's done. Whereas it of course seems to be 
the opposite that I, I guess you have to come out more than once and you have to make that decision repeatedly. Over, I mean, I just started right. a new job. It was like, when when am I going to tell my boss? When am I going to tell my coworkers? When am I going to tell the receptionist? When am I going to tell my new clients? When am I going to tell the other my network here? You know. Yeah, I, I think there's there, there's certainly the big coming out, right? And right. I think. Uh, you know, the first time you come out to your friends, uh, usually I think a lot of people look at it as when you first come out to your family, like especially your, your parents, uh, I think is the big one. Right. Um, it's true. You come out every day, basically. But it, at least it's not as dramatic. Uh, no, no, exactly. I, I don't... It's not a matter of, of sitting down with a colleague and being... It's, you need to know. <laughs> Shut the door. <laughs> Could you, do you have five minutes? Can you close the door? Um, I thought you should know that I, I'm gay. But I don't expect this to impact uh, my review of the Redfern schedule uh, you've asked me to look at. Uh, my gay eyes can see that table quite well. Yeah, you. but uh, you know, you do it in a, in a more subtle way. I was discussing this with my boyfriend uh, Right. I, you know, I went out dancing at this place. I've never heard of it. The reason you may not have heard of it is because it is a gay bar. That, right. that, that sort of thing. So you do have to come out on a regular basis, but it is not as dramatic True. as True. the first time. But I think what's good, I mean, especially what we were, what we were talking about having role models that are out, it's, it sends the wrong message, and exactly what uh, this lawyer was saying is that it sends the wrong message when the senior lawyers that you know are gay are back in the closet and they're just like, you know, they give you a wink and then they don't tell you anything. And then you're like, okay, well, what, how are we moving the needle forward? And how are you moving the needle forward? Um, if you think we need to move the needle forward at all, which, and I think the takeaway is um, that we do. Does that still happen? Yes. Is that thing that you have people who are like still staying in the closet at yeah. senior level? Because that was the generation. That's it was the um, Liberace generation of you can be as gay as you want, but just don't say the words, right? Like you can live your life. You yeah. can you can bring your Uncle Tom around whenever you want to, and like wear your floral print shirts, but you can't say the words. Uh, uh, let, let me give an example. It's not a law firm example, but it's still it is shocking. Um, I attended a uh, one of these LGBT. Um, award ceremonies we can get to that in a second here in london and it was celebrating uh the ceo of a major american corporation um uh for being a champion for for gay rights but what they didn't really share until you got there was that he himself was gay and only really came out i think in his 60s and only (laughs) after facing cancer uh but even but even in that context he discusses this process by which he checked with the entire board. Uh, and I think it might have been because it was a listed company or something like that. But could you imagine that before you came out as, as a business decision, you had to <laughs> consult with each and right. every board yeah. member. And and here I think he did. How will my sexual orientation affect the stock price? Yeah, no, and I think in this, I mean, I don't know if that was the concern. I, I don't want to, I'm, I'm being glib. Uh, but in, in, you know, in those circumstances, he probably did have a, can we have a 15-minute conversation where he yeah. did close the door and and literally did a dramatic coming out to, to each and every one of them? Uh, and, you know, and this is the boss. Right, right. <laughs> this is the person in charge running of the company. The running the show. And there, there, there was a lot of fear. So, I mean, that's, it's, it, but it's a very real example yeah. uh, of, 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 of the precise generational thing um, that Brian's talking about. 
So to maybe put a little lighter twist on all of this, um, colleagues, I think, are the easier ones to come out to because they're your friends. They become your friends. Um, Those are the people you spend the most time with. Those tend to be people of a younger generation, so they tend to come from more open uh, contexts. Um, we We got a message from a private practice lawyer in Toronto who self identifies as gay. Um, cis male, I need to like say all of these things, right? Mm. Uh, a cis male, it's like the Dan Savage Love podcast. Um, he said, not sure what I have to say. I've been out my entire legal career, now three firms and two in-house summer positions, and it's never been an issue. In my firm, there's not, there's a bit of a community organization, which is actually a nice way to meet people and their partners on a friendly social level. However, I've felt a bit of an uncomfortable dynamic dealing with banker bros, uh, but I just avoid socializing with them as a form of business development. Um, A gay partner at my firm has said that he's made it his unofficial business to ensure that LGBT plus associates get good work and will enable them to advance towards partnership. So I guess there's a need for that from his perspective, Um, which is an interesting thing, right? Giving, like taking the active thing of giving someone a leg up, but maybe... Um, it's just about mentoring, I guess, is what he was talking about there. But banker bros, I guess there is uh, that that uh, that generalization of people in like the banking and finance sector that are throwing midgets against the wall like Wolf of Wall Street. Um, that may not necessarily be, or you'll get things. Have you ever gotten a generic like not a gay slur, but like a a gay um, what am I trying to stereotype? Like, oh, come on over, here. like. You must like this cupcake on our table because it's pink. I, 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 what I have, what I have received. I remember when I was an articling student in Canada. Um, another articling student said, "Oh, you're gay. You'd love my friend. Oh yeah, Dave, who is oh, yeah. also gay and has one with, leg with, with like with no other descriptors as to why <laughs> we we must meet. Uh, right. It was literally, I work with you, and I know another homosexual. Right. Perhaps you two will get married. Like, uh, <laughs> so I get that. That's true. Uh, that I, I, I don't get any any slurs. I, I want to comment on, on the banker bro situation because okay. you know, sure, there, for various reasons, we all have. Uh, business development situations where we're uncomfortable, but the, but the flip side to that uh, is, um, and I think some lawyers are very good at this. Maybe not in arbitration, maybe in arbitration, but there are many lawyers who are good at uh, having strong LGBT networks because mm-hmm. you know we're all around. There are many gay people in banks. Uh, there are many people working in house for for various organizations, uh, and there are many people who have strong LGBT networks, and they and they and they use that. To their advantage as, as a source of business development, right? Uh, you know, there's a positive spin uh, to being involved uh, in various organizations for business development reasons, uh, for showing leadership within you know within your firm. Uh, you know, often um, I don't know what it, what your experience is like at Pride, but often uh, LGBT organizations are easier opportunities for more junior lawyers to be at the top of a pecking order or something much sooner right. than say you know, running the arbitration department uh, in, in your firm. And so there's a lot of uh, advantages that that you can, that you can seek out if you're comfortable with that. That is very true. Uh, Well, I, without this segment being an an entire episode on itself, we can end on an interesting uh, email that we got at the last minute, which we were very happy to get. Um, It is from a, trans female who is bisexual in Amsterdam working at a law firm or who has worked in the arbitration department of two major Dutch law firms for a period of 18 months. 
Um, she, a friend of hers got um, an email from another friend who I guess listens to the podcast or is on Twitter saying, hey, you have to share your story. And we're very happy she did. Um, she says that first as an intern and later as a legal assistant, she worked at these Dutch law firms. She did her transition from male to female in two years, which uh, periods actually completely coincide with when she worked at the arbitration departments. I'll just use the I from now on. I was visibly changing and rather anxious how people would respond to my appearance. I mentioned my situation beforehand and I was pleasantly surprised, surprised by their reactions. They both turned out to be very dedicated to LGBT inclusion. Both had networks that made me feel welcome and I got treated like any other person despite the occasional question about my situation. A great plus that I could walk to the hospital from work and could do it in between work hours. However, it is the people that matter, preferably people who are open to LGBT issues for who, so you don't have to hide your bisexuality or transition. All in all, I had a great experience and I would love to return at some point. For a lot of people though, you are the first trans person that they're likely to meet, let alone know. You might be the one within the entire firm, regardless whether it's 50 plus or 500 plus people in the firm, especially if we hide our existence. I sincerely hope that more LGBT people, especially the T, find their way into the legal profession or come out of their shell wherever they are. Life is better when you are you, and we can all help make it progressively better. Just make sure your firm has the right policies in place to instill some sensibility towards other people's issues. You never know who was in the closet until they come, nor who remain in there because you are sending the wrong message. Wise words. Couldn't say it better myself. Right? I think there's a lot of things to take out of it. One of it is that firms, and this is connecting it to the arbitration, that firms need to have policies in place. Um, these, whether these doctor's appointments, you know, what if the doctor's appointments, these surgeries, um, is the firm going to make them take private time because of this? It's because it's not a necessary surgery. It's an elective surgery, according to the policy. I don't know what uh, the firm's policy have. The basics is HR on top of this. You know, like, yeah. you know, there's usually, um, and I only know this because I, I, I worked with someone who went through the transition. And so you, I got, like, an email one day that was just, hi, I go by the name of, because, you know, the transition will usually involve a change of name. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, is HR, you know, fully ready with, like, the name change, the change to all the records. Right. Um, you know, because you'd think that that's something so basic, but, you know, they have to be prepared to do all, all the logistics as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then also, I mean, where life is better when you are who you are, and we can all help make it progressively better. Um, I think that's that's very true. And you never know who's in the closet, which is an interesting point. I mean, to, to be a leader, to be a thought leader in the, in the sexuality version of the word um that we could maybe take people like lay the groundwork for a more of a comfortable atmosphere for people to come out we had um i had someone that i knew that i had a suspicion and then i you know i was like how do i show how open i basically my idea was i'm going to show how open i am and in an entire you know when we're sitting down and having coffee to make them know without me signaling to them that it's okay that everything here is okay and that but you let them do it on their own time right i think yeah. we can say that it's not our job to out anyone or not our job to be like hey so um if you feel like coming out you can tell me that's not what you want to hear um but just to know that it's a safe space um and 
we that are out to not go back inside again. And this is a reason, like, again, I, I choose to be as out as possible for that exact reason. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, trainees know that if, if there are people higher up um, in seniority who are very comfortable with being out, I think that is the best, one of the best signals that you can, yeah. you can create. I mean, I had some trepidation. What can we other... Oh, sorry, this is a bit of a lag. What, what can we do when speaking again as the, the voice of the stupid straight universe? What can we do to uh, make it easier, especially for aspiring LGBT plus people working in the field? If you're working in a firm, um, many organizations, my firm included, has um, what are often referred to as ally organizations. So for people who don't self-identify as LGBT but want to express their support for the LGBT community. Um, so ours is called Halo Champions. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that is a, and often you'll get special training uh, or there'll be, you know, events of, of various sorts. You'll be more involved in, you know, organizing pride events at the firm and that sort of thing. So uh, one of the things that can be done is, is be involved, um, be involved to the extent there's any activism, be involved in the activism. Yeah. You know, LGBT activism need not be limited to LGBT individuals. Right. Um, uh, call out language. Uh, when someone says something inappropriate, you know, mm -hmm. this is very similar to right. conversations we've had about Me Too uh, when calling out um, actions or, or words uh, that are harmful uh, to women, uh, call out that same language and behavior in relation to the LGBT community. Are you writing this down, Joel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. am. No, but I, I think you're right. It's that it's not uh, any event or any any meeting that has to do with the pride or halo or whatever is not just necessarily a closed room discussion. It's it's for everyone, and I think everyone should be interested to you know engage in the discussion. And firms that don't have a specific LGBT group probably have a diversity group. Yeah, um, and that's a way to kind of get everyone in on the discussion because. Even in the gender discussion, it tends to turn about maternity leave, and that, that has nothing to do with a single woman who's trying to make it in the career as well. So, um, you know, the, the discussion is broader than what the title of, of the discussion says. Um, but I yeah. I add to this or, or ask you, because it's the, this, this uh, email from the, the young academic in China still resonates with me a little bit, and most of the things we've been talking about so far, I think, have been on the assumption that you are with a large international firm, or at least that you are working in sort of a Western metropolitan center. But if you are not, if you don't have a diversity group at your employer, or if there's no networking opportunities, or no you know, obvious ways of finding support and role models, do you have any advice or encouraging words? Because I think there's a lot of them listening to this podcast, actually. I mean that is really tricky, and yeah. and, and beyond my, um, my 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 sort of my I don't want to say expertise, Your but training. it's certainly beyond <laughs> my experience. I mean the the one thing you know I work with a number of grassroots LGBT organizations through my work uh, with with Freshfields. It's not strictly speaking arbitration. Uh, some of it is public international law, but some of it is is none of the above, and it's just part of my practice. Uh, and so you learn, you know, from those circumstances that there are various advocacy organizations uh, that exist uh, to support uh, LGBT individuals uh, in, in various countries where the climate perhaps may not be as uh, as safe or um, welcome. Uh, but I, again, I can't even provide a recommendation in that regard because 
you know, often even those organizations themselves can sometimes be under threat, depending on, on right. the level of hostility uh, w- within the countries that we're, you know, that we're talking about. Uh, so I, I can't really give prescriptive information, but I, I can say that there, there usually will be resources mm-hmm. of some sort. There, there, there usually will be uh, organizations. Uh, to the extent that you can tap into an international network, uh, do so. Um, you know, uh, yeah. you, you know, if you work for a global firm, but in a jurisdiction that's not so globally welcome, uh, you should still hopefully be able to find a way to get uh, looped in uh, to that network. I, I think, again, at Fresh Shields, I think we have champions, and I think in every one of our offices, or at least we try to, mm-hmm. um, so that someone knows there is a proper ally in that office. Right. Um, for for example, uh, and then otherwise, you know, not to be glib, but you know, there's Twitter. Uh, you, you know, there's various ways to sort of interact uh, right. and, and find connections with people and find support. Uh, that may not be the most satisfactory answer. <laughs> like, this is all I can come well, up with. I was from- gonna say that, uh, especially when I was thinking about like my own personal situation, it was always like, as long as I work hard, then that you can't hide a good player, as my parents like to say. So if you're <laughs> If you're working hard and, you know, if you're an academic and you just focus on publishing good work and your name will proceed itself, I mean, then you will be able to kind of make a mark in the international community and then more doors will open that is not necessarily in the small town that doesn't really accept you. So if you work hard, then I I think our industry is specific in the sense that they really enjoy high-level thinking. So if you contribute to that discussion, then there's no way to ignore your contribution. Sound advice. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you for joining us, and thank you for being a leader and a champion of the discussion. Um, I hope email us your reactions to this at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com. Tweet at us at the ARB station um, or at our personal accounts. Thank you, Joel, for listening to us to preach. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming in, Michael. Have a nice weekend, both of you. Thank you, and thank you for having me here again.